You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we confess to you our need for your spirit and understanding your word. You have given it to us in the person of your Son and through the power and inspiration of the Spirit. And so we pray, O God, that you would enlighten and illumine our eyes and hearts that we might understand your word and understand some very complicated things. We pray that you would guard us from error today and help us to think rightly about very complex things that we might honor and glorify you and give to you the worship that you are worthy of, to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we might know and worship the one triune and true God. We ask for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity, that message is one that I have been knowing that we were going, that I was going to give and we were going to have to grapple with at some point in going through the Gospel of John. Before we ever started John chapter 1, verse 1, I said to myself, sometime during this Gospel, we are going to have to take a Sunday to set it apart and deal with the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Something most of you or many of you, I'm sure, have heard. Maybe not many of you are familiar with it or maybe not many of you would be able to articulate it or to defend it. And then last week, as um, well, several weeks ago, actually, as we were approaching John chapter 5, I guess that would be several months ago now, as we were approaching John chapter 5, I kind of came to the conclusion that sometime during John 5 is when we would discuss this doctrine of the Trinity. Because John 5, verses 17, or really 19 through 47, is what we call the Divine Son Discourse. So I knew that we wouldn't be able to get very much past verse 19, and we would have to start grappling with the biblical true doctrine of the Trinity and what that means and how we define it, how we describe it, how we defend it, what it means, what it doesn't mean. And then last Sunday, I wasn't even out of this building before I was thinking in my mind, before we even begin verse 19, we've really got to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity because you can't even begin to grasp the concepts and the terms and the wording of verse 19 without first defining and describing the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's what we're going to do today. Last week, we stopped at verse 18. We saw that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he made a most outrageous claim. The Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And what Jesus was saying is, 
the work that the Father uniquely does on the Sabbath, that is the work that I myself, as the Son of God, one in nature with the Father, also do on the Sabbath. And rightly, the Jews understood him to be claiming equality with God. Now that statement in verse 17 that Jesus made, that statement alone, means that Jesus is either worthy to be killed and scorned, or he is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed. Because that statement, claiming equality with the Father in nature, in work, and in authority, is a statement that if it is not true, Jesus Christ deserves to be killed and scorned and held up to ridicule because he is at best deluded and at worst a deceiver. But if it is true that he and the Father are one and that the Father, the work that the Father does, he as equal with the Father also does, then Jesus Christ is not worthy to be killed and mocked. He is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed and honored as the incarnate God. So that leads us now to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I would wonder this, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so you just answer this question in your own mind. No hands, please. How many of you would feel comfortable defining and defending the doctrine of the Trinity? Would you feel comfortable defining and defending the doctrine of the Trinity? To... Stand up here and say, this is what the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity is. And you would be able to defend it if a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness came to your door. And furthermore, would you be able to distinguish between the doctrine of the Trinity and a lot of erroneous heretical counterfeits like Sabellianism or modalism or polytheism or uh, monarchianism or any of those other heresies that kind of crop up around subordinationism, those heresies that crop up around the Trinity. Would you know the difference between the Trinity and its counterfeit doctrines, which are heresies, and what the fine distinctions are? Now, I wouldn't expect that by the time you leave here today, you're going to have all of your questions answered about the Trinity. You're just you're not going to. I don't have all of my questions answered about the Trinity, and I'm preaching the message. So I don't expect you, having listened to it one time, to have all of your questions under, answered about the Trinity and to fully understand this doctrine. But I do want to do something toward making you a little bit more comfortable with the doctrine of the Trinity. A lot of people run from theology. I don't think that, by and large, that's the mindset of the people who come here. I don't think that you come here every week hoping that this is going to be the most mentally disengaged hour of your week. Um, I expect and we expect you to come here with your Bibles open and to engage the thinker, to kick it into high gear, and the expectation is that you're going to think along, we're going to deal with some tough things once in a while. And that's what we're seeking to do this morning. That's the expectation. You don't want to run from theology. You don't want to be like the people who say, look, I don't want theology. You don't give me doctrine. Just give me Jesus. Just give me God. You ever run into people like that? I don't want doctrine. I want theology. I just want Jesus and I just want God. Really? Which Jesus? Which God? I see, to answer that question requires what? It requires some sort of doctrinal theological statement, does it not? Or you run into people who say doctrine and theology is not important. And we should not emphasize doctrine and theology. Really? Is that your doctrine? Is that your theology? Sounds like you're emphasizing it. And the one important thing that you know is important is that doctrine is not important. See, to say doctrine and theology is not important is itself a theological statement about theology and the importance of theology. And obviously you would believe that some theology is important. You need to make that statement. So we're not running from theology. We don't want to run from doctrine. I'm asking you to kick the thinker into high gear, and we're going to talk about some, some things that are just going to require us to really, really engage the mind today and to think clearly and to think carefully 
about the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's begin by defining the doctrine of the Trinity. Before we, be, before we define the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to even back up one step further and say, how is it that we are to know about God or to know God? Knowing God and experiencing God in an experiential knowledge of Him is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, that is, or and, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing, being rightly related, and knowing by experience, knowing personally and intimately, not any God, but the one true and living God. There is only one God. To know Him is to have eternal life. To not know the one true God is to not have eternal life. And it is to be cut off from life. Because there is only one God that is able to give life. And that is the one true and living God. To know Him and to know Jesus Christ is to have eternal life. And so that is our goal. So now we ask the question, how is it that God has revealed Himself to us? If the goal of my life is to know Him, and by knowing Him to have eternal life, how is it that God has revealed Himself to us? You and I must embrace God as He has revealed Himself to us, though we may not be able to fully comprehend His nature and being. We must be willing to embrace it and accept as true that which He has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Not only that, but God has revealed Himself to us in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So that we as Christians can say, all that can be known of God, all that can be known of the essence and substance and being of God, is revealed to us by, in, and through the person of Jesus Christ. So to know Jesus Christ is to know God, not part of God, but all of God. And to know all of God is to have eternal life. So how do we have eternal life? We must know the one true and living God. How do we know the one true and living God? We know Him only and solely through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is for us the revelation of all that God is. Now we've talked about the deity of Christ, the full deity of Christ, and we've described what that is since the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen how Jesus has claimed equality with the Father. But now we begin to try and put all of this together and we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible teach about God? If I am to know Him, how has He revealed Himself to us? He has revealed Himself to us in the person of His Son. The person of His Son. So let's now give you, I would now give you a definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now some people would object and say, but you'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. And that's true. It's also true that you'll never find the word Bible in the Bible. That doesn't mean we don't use it. The word Bible is a word that we use to describe a collection of 66 books. The word Trinity is a word that we use to describe what the Bible teaches about the nature of God as He has revealed Himself to us. So though the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, it's a word we use to describe what we do find in the Bible about the nature of God. So here is a working definition of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-eternal, co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll repeat it for you. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want a good workable book on the subject of the Trinity, I pulled one off of my shelf last Sunday and read it through this last week just to prepare for this morning, just to kind of refresh my mind on some things, some issues. It is The Forgotten Trinity by James White. The Forgotten Trinity by James White. It's not for written for scholars, philosophers, or apologists. It's really written at a, at a basic level so that pretty much anybody could pick up this book and understand the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. The Forgotten Trinity by James White. And this is where this definition comes from. I think it's a good workable definition. There's more that could be added to the definition. We could qualify it and we could throw all kinds of different terms in there to sort of make it clearer. But I think that this is basically the mousetrap, as it were. It's the, the irreducible minimum. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-eternal, co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that definition has three foundational truths that you and I must affirm concerning God. Three of them. Convenient, isn't it, since we're talking about the Trinity? See the three, the three foundational truths? Not my idea. It's just the way that it actually happens to work out. Three foundational truths. So I'm going to give each foundational truth to you. Foundational truth number one concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. And to be a believer, you must affirm this. You must affirm this. And you must affirm the entire biblical doctrine of the Trinity that I am about to present to you. Because if you don't, you cannot be saved. you understand that? Trinitarianism. I forgot to mention this. Trinitarianism and the doctrine of the Trinity is not a non-essential of the Christian faith. This is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Without this, one cannot be saved. Because if you do not have the right Jesus, you do not have the right Father. And if you do not have the right Father, then you do not have the right one true God. And if you do not have the one true and living God, you do not have eternal life. Does that make sense? In order to have eternal life, you have to have the one true and living God. In order to have the one true and living God, you have to have the right Father and the right Son. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. You have to have the Father and the Son. You have to think rightly about the person of God, otherwise you are an idolater. So you must think rightly about the person of God. Second John 1, 2 John verse 9 says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you want the Father and the Son? You want God? You have to think rightly about the Trinity. That within this one being that is God, there exists three co-eternal, co equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Foundational truth number one, there is one God. One God. This is monotheism. One God. There is one God. As as Trinitarians, we do not believe in tritheism. That is that there are three gods. That the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so we have one, two, and three different gods. Trinitarians are often accused of being polytheists, that we reject monotheism and believe in polytheism, that you have to believe in three different gods. And the doctrine of monotheism is so consistently and so forcefully taught in Scripture, I'm not even going to bother to try and lay out the proof of it for you here today. I'm going to assume it, that if you're a Christian, you come here, you are a monotheist, that you believe that there is one God. If you have ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and you've picked up some of their literature and you've read through any of their literature, particularly their their, um, their literature on the Trinity, this is one of the key mistakes. They make two basic mistakes. One of them is that they accuse those who believe in the Trinity of being polytheists. They say, if you believe the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, you have three gods. And then they will quote Deuteronomy 6, I think it's verse 4, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And they will say, therefore, since there is one God, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches there are three gods, therefore the doctrine of the Trinity is false. No, believing in the doctrine of Trinity means we believe that there is one being, one substance, one, one God. Foundational truth number two. There are three divine persons. They said, Jim, it's a contradiction. You said one and you said three. Yeah, one and three 
are not contradictions. They're just numbers. I say we affirm that there is one God and that there are three divine persons. That is not a contradiction. That is not irrational. If I were to say to you there is one God and three gods, that would be a contradiction. If I were to say that God exists as one person and three persons, that would be a contradiction. If I were to say that the being of God is one being and three beings, that would be a contradiction. But if I say to you that God is one God and there are three persons, that is not a contradiction. We are describing one what and three who's. One what and three who's. When we talk about God, we are talking about one what. What is it? It is God. His nature, His substance, the divine essence, the divine being. One being who exists eternally as three who's. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is foundational truth number two. Monotheism, there is one God. Foundational truth number two, there are three divine persons. Now, what do we mean when we say persons? Sometimes the word persons is not altogether helpful. Sometimes it can be a hindrance because we attach all kinds of baggage to the word persons. For instance, when we think of persons, we think of unique individual beings, right? You are a person and you are separate from another person because you are one being and they are another being. And so we associate the idea of personhood with singularity of being. Oftentimes we also associate the idea of personhood with human beings. Or we think of limitations. A a person has certain limitations. But when we describe the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are talking about three persons, none of whom have any limitations. So some theologians use the term subsistences when speaking of the Trinity and the persons in the Trinity. There are three subsistences within the Trinity. I just use the term persons because really what I'm describing is three self-conscious egos. So when we describe, when we talk about the, per, the, the Trinity and we talk about persons, we are not saying, we are not saying that God is three human beings. Listen carefully. We are not saying God is three human beings. Nor are we saying that God can be divided into three parts. We can split him up like a, a pie. Move him over here, move part of him over here, move part of him down here. It's not what we're saying. And when we talk about three persons, neither are we saying that any one part of God, because God doesn't have parts, which I just said, that no one person, we should say, can exist independently or separate from the other two. What we are saying is that God exists in such a way that within the being that is God, there are three, listen carefully, independent, self-conscious egos who act distinct from one another and yet coordinate with one another. There are three self-conscious egos who act distinct from one another and coordinate with one another. What do we mean when we talk about egos? Simply persons. So that any one person of the Trinity can use the pronouns, the personal pronouns, I, you, or he, of the other persons of the Trinity. So you can have the Father say to the Son, you, and speak of the Holy Spirit as he. Or say to the Spirit, you, and speak of the Son as he. Or you can have the Son speak to the Father and say you, or speak of the Spirit and say he. And you can have the Spirit speak to the Son and say you, and speak of the Father as he. Does this make sense? So that within the Trinity, you can have a conversation Because one person can have a conversation. 
with the other persons and relate to them as I, you, and He. You see it at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in the third person, of whom I am well pleased. It was the Father who said that. And the Son could pray to the Father and speak of the Holy Spirit in the third person. Three distinct self-conscious egos who act in distinct and yet coordinate ways. So that Jesus could speak of the works that He did, knowing that it was God doing the works that He did, and also the Spirit doing those same works through the Son. They work in distinct and yet coordinate ways. So that's foundation number two. Are you lost yet? I hope not, because when we get to foundation number three, now this is where it all kind of comes together. This is where this becomes very precise, very difficult, and this is where the wheels fall off of this enterprise in a hurry if we are not careful. And it is on foundation number three that many an error is made. So let's go through this carefully. Foundation number three, those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Co-equal and co-eternal. There was never a time when the Son did not exist and the Father did and the Spirit did. There was never a time when any of those three members did not exist. There was never a time when one of them came into being. They have always, from eternity past, before there was time, eons and eons and eons ago, and before that, eons before that, go back as far as your mind can stretch into eternity, and they existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship to one another, always existing as that. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His being and His nature do not change. He is always the same. So he is co. all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Now here's what that means. All of the being of God, there is one being who is God. All that belongs to the divine being, all of the substance and the essence of deity is possessed in full by the Father. At the very same time, all that belongs to deity the substance and the essence of God, is possessed in full by the Son. And at the very same time, all of the essence and substance of God, all that makes God God, His entire being is possessed in full by the Spirit. So when you when you have God, you do not have the Son being a third of God, and the Father being a third of God, and the Spirit being a third of God. It's not that when you put all three of them together in the same room, you finally have God, and that without one, you're only with two-thirds of God. If it were possible, and this is not possible, this would be heretical to say this is possible, but theoretically, if it were possible to take the Father in another room, away from the Spirit and the Son, and just have the Father with you, you would have not a third of God, but all of God. And you could do that with the Son and with the Spirit. Now, it's impossible because where the Father is, there the Son is and the Spirit is. And where the Spirit is, there the Son and the Father are. And where the Son is, there the Father and the Spirit are. You can't separate them. But we should never think of God as being three things, that when you add them all together, you'll get God. And if you take one of them out, you're left with two-thirds of God. All that belongs to the being of God, that one being, is possessed in full by the Father, at the same time by the Son, and at the same time by the Spirit. That one being, that one essence, that one substance of God, belongs in full to all three persons of the Trinity, at the same time, always, and from all eternity. 
Now, those are deep waters to swim in, aren't they? How is that possible? We think of humanity, we think of being as being something that can only be shared by one person. That is me. I am a human being. I have my own being. And I share it with nobody else. But in the person or the nature of God, in the essence and substance of God, not the person, the essence and substance of God, that being is shared in full, always, by all three persons. So that to be in the presence of Jesus is to be in the presence not of a third of God, but to be in the presence of all that is God. All of it. Does that make sense? That is why Jesus could say to Philip, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He was able to say that, not because the Father and Jesus are the same person, but because they are the same being, the same nature. To behold and embrace and honor and love and receive and to know the Son is not to know just a part of God. It is to know fully the Father and the Spirit. If you know Jesus, if you embrace Him and you understand Him and you love Him, to see Him is to see all that can be seen of God. You don't need to be able to see the Father and see the Holy Spirit. That's the point in John 14. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To see, to, to gaze upon the being of Christ is to gaze upon the full being of all that is God. Not just some of God. These three persons share the essence and being and nature of God. Not like three people drawing water out of a well. But there is one well. And all three of them are all of the water in the well. That's, that's a poor analogy. You can't even make any analogy. See, at this point, it would be, it would be customary for me to say to you, okay, let me, let me illustrate the Trinity for you. Let me give you an example or an illustration or analogy of the Trinity. God is like blah, blah, blah. And you've heard them. You've heard pastors use them. I have used them in years past, many, many years past. I've come to the conclusion that we should never use any analogy for the doctrine of the Trinity. Never. Why? Because no analogy is sufficient. Every analogy, every illustration that you can try and, and create for the doctrine of the Trinity is inadequate because the truth is that God is like nothing. Nothing. No analogy will suffice because even though we could come up with an analogy, and you've heard some of them, you come up with an analogy that sort of communicates the truth of one of those foundational truths that I gave you. It illustrates one of those. But the problem is that every analogy, the wheels come off on the other two truths, and it communicates something about God that is heretical. You've heard the analogies. God is like an egg. I've used this one years ago. There's the shell and the yolk and the white. And you put, see, three things. You put them all together and you have an egg. Without any one of those, you don't have the full egg. No, God's not like an egg. It's not like an egg. Because the shell and the yolk and the, the white are not the same substance. They're not the same being. Crunch the whole thing up in the frying pan, fry it up and eat it, and you'll realize that with the first bite. The three things are not all one substance. They are three entirely different substances that illustration is a great analogy for polytheism, tritheism, that we have three different gods. Or you may have heard some people say, and I've used this one, God is like me. Those, those words can hardly come off my lips. I am a father to some people, namely four. I am a son to one person, namely my mother, and I am a pastor to a lot of other people. See, there you have father, son, and pastor all in the one person. What's the problem with that analogy? It's modalism. I'm not three different beings. I'm one being. I'm not three different 
uh, I'm not, I'm three diff, I'm not three different persons, I should say. I'm not three different persons. I'm not a, a father being one distinct, unique person. In other words, the father, Jim Osmond, never speaks of the pastor, Jim Osmond, as he, to the son, Jim Osmond. I never have a conversation with myself. Do I ever do that? You better hope I don't ever do that. Jim Osmond never refers to himself in the third person. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So the analogy that I, that I function as a father to some in this capacity, a, a son to one in this capacity, and a pastor to others in this capacity, that is an illustration of modalism, which we're going to cover in just a second. It's modalism. But it's not Trinitarianism. So that falls short. Well, how about space? Length, breadth, and height. No, that's inadequate. That, that communicates things about God that are not true. It, it may illustrate three things. There, there are three parts to this triune God. It may illustrate that, but when it gets down to the essence and the nature of it, it, it fails to communicate it. It communicates something about God that is heretical. Every analogy about the Trinity communicates something to people that is heretical. It muddies the water and it leads people away from right thinking about the nature of God. How about time, past, present, and future? See, three things, they're all together. You put them all together, you got a timeline, past, present, and future. No, that doesn't work either. There's no analogy that works. Anytime you begin to say, God is like, listen, you are skating on ice that is so thin it cannot support the next word, unless that word is nothing. God himself has said, to what will you liken me? You read it in Scripture, right? To what will you liken me? And then we, like fools, jump up and say, I know, an egg. You're like an egg. No, if God were like an egg, we would read that in Isaiah. To whom will you liken me? The answer is nothing. There is nothing in all of creation that God is like. Absolutely nothing. He is completely and universally unique. There's no analogy. There's no picture. There's no illustration. There's no way of describing this other than to say this. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal, co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to go beyond that is to dive into heresy. Or to say God is like this. Do you know what the, the second commandment about making the graven image was all about? It wasn't just because graven images are visible and God's invisible and you can't communicate an invisible attribute through a visible thing. It went beyond that. Every graven image, every analogy, every illustration to try and capture the nature and the character of God falls short because God is like absolutely nothing. And it is an insult, an insult to the divine nature to begin to say, God is like this. And then to lay out an analogy when he is universally unique. Absolutely universally unique. No analogy. Now let's deal with a common error. So we've got all three foundations in place. Monotheism, there is one God. There are three divine persons. And number three, those three divine persons are co-equal and co-eternal. That gives us the definition of the doctrine of the Trinity, that within the one being of God there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Now an error. There are a number of different errors in the history of the Christian church, some of them more common than others. And Another, a number of them have uh, sort of come in vogue and gone out of vogue at different times in church history. I'm going to give you one that I think is probably making some comebacks into Christianity and um, sort of coming in, creeping in under the radar, as it were, because I believe that the church, by and large, not necessarily this church, but the church by and large across this country is not necessarily known for its theological acumen and discernment. And so heresies can kind of creep in underneath the radar when people do not make the fine distinctions that you need to make concerning the attributes of the Trinity. 
So one very common error that is promoted today regarding the Trinity is the doctrine of modalism. Modalism, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M, modalism. Modalism denies the second of our three foundational truths. Modalism denies that there are three persons. So a modalist would affirm there is one God, and he would affirm, of course, number three, rightly understood, that God is equal to himself, because nobody is equal to God, so God, of course, is equal. But he would deny the second one, that there are three eternal, co-distinct, or co-eternal, co-equal, distinct, self-conscious egos. So a modalist would say there is one God who exists as one person. And sometimes he plays the role or the mode of the Father. Other times he plays the role or the mode of the Son. And other times he plays the role or the mode of the Spirit. So what you have in the modalistic God is somebody coming onto the stage like a play actor and he puts on a a mask and plays one role, puts on a mask and plays another role, and puts on a mask and plays another role. Have you ever been to the uh, one-man theater things that they do? For Pat McManus, have you ever seen those? Tim Barons does the thing where he comes on stage and he plays all these different characters and he's Rancid Crabtree and he's Pat McManus and he's Crazy Eddie Muldoon and he does all of those on the same stage, but it's one person, one being. That's modalism for you. See, the illustration that I gave about me being a father and a son and a pastor is a good modalistic illustration because I am one person. I'm one person. I'm not three self-conscious egos. I'm one person. And I play the role of father to some. I play the role of son to another person. And I play the role of pastor to a lot of other people. But I am just one person playing each one of these three distinct roles. That is modalism. That's a good analogy of modalism. And it is a heresy. It is a heresy because it denies that there are three separate, self-conscious, distinct egos, persons within the Trinity. So a modalist has a very difficult time making sense of passages like the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the Son is there and the Father says, of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Three distinct persons. Those things just make the mind of a modalist short circuit because they can't even account for that because they deny three persons. And I say, is this really creeping into Christianity? Is it really that subtle? It is. There's a whole denomination called Oneness Pentecostals that deny the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and they are modalists. Men like T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. This is going to get me in trouble with somebody. But Phillips, Craig, and Dean are modalists. The singing group, the band, they're modalists. They deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, not because they just got that definition wrong. It wasn't that. They understand the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. They reject that, and they articulate very clearly modalistic theology, denying three separate, co-eternal, distinct persons. They believe there's one God who operates, manifests, works, all these different words are used, in three separate ways. That's modalism. Now, Jim, are you suggesting that Phillips, Craig, and Dean are not Christians? That's not what I'm suggesting. That's what I'm saying. There's no suggestion about it, friends. They are heretics. But they produce some of the most wonderful worship music I've ever heard. Yeah. Worship to a God that does not exist. You know what we call people who worship gods that do not exist? We call them idolaters. Idolaters. But they are so talented. Some of the most talented heretics you will ever listen to in your life. I will say this about Phillips, Craig, and Dean. They wear their sheep's clothing very well. Very well. 
They creep into Christian bookstores. They are in Christian homes. They are on Christian bookshelves. They are on Christian radio stations constantly, and Christians by the thousands flock to their worship services, known as concerts. And the three men who are the one band, oh, the irony of that, the three men who are the one band, who deny that there are three persons, all who are the one God, get up there and they lead Christians in worship to a God that does not exist. The God of Mormonism is not the God of the Bible, and the God of modalism is not the God of the Bible. The Jesus of Mormonism is not the God of the Bible, and the Jesus of modalism is not the God of the Bible. If Phillips, Craig, and Dean do not have the right Jesus, they do not have the right Father, they do not have the right Father, they do not have the right God, and they do not have the right God, they do not have eternal life. That's the testimony of Scripture. They are self-conscious heretics. Self-conscious heretics. They know they're heretics. They know they reject the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. They serve and worship an entirely different God. That is the danger of modalism. So now we come back to where we started. You must have the right God, and you must have the right Jesus. And if you do not have the right Jesus, you do not affirm Him and His deity and his eternality and his personhood separate from the Son or separate from the Spirit and the Father. If you do not have that Jesus, the Jesus as he has revealed himself, then you do not have God as he has revealed himself. And if you do not have God as he has revealed himself, you have an idol, you do not have eternal life, and you are lost forevermore unless you repent and come to the true Jesus and embrace God as he has revealed himself. Christianity at its core is a Trinitarian religion. This book is a Trinitarian book from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is implicit. It is there. It is veiled in the New Testament. It is explicit. It is in full bloom. It is manifest for all to see. But this book is a Trinitarian book from first to last. And our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Listen, when you remove the Trinity from Christianity, you don't have Christianity at all. And when you remove the Trinity from the Gospel, you do not have the Gospel. That is why modalists and Sabellians and Unitarians and the Monarchians and Pastor Passionists and all of the people who, and polytheists, that is why they get the Gospel wrong. Because they have removed the Trinity and so they replace it with something else. What is the Gospel and how is the Trinity implicit in the Gospel? It's explicit in the Gospel. How so? It is the plan of the triune God to glorify Himself. By the Father giving to the Son a people. The Son paying the debt for those people. And the Spirit taking those people and drawing them and sanctifying them all to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The plan of redemption is a triune plan of redemption. It is Trinitarian. The Gospel is Trinitarian. This Bible is Trinitarian. Christianity is Trinitarian. You remove it and you remove everything else. It all crumbles like a house of cards. All you have is is a shell left. The gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology says this, It is not therefore by any arbitrary decision nor from any bigoted adherence to hereditary beliefs that the church has always refused to recognize as Christians those who reject this doctrine. Except today, right? Well, now we sell their books and we put them up on stage and we go worship with them. But historically, the church has always refused to accept as Christians those who deny this doctrine. Charles Hodge again. This judgment is only the expression of the deep conviction that anti-Trinitarianism must adopt a radically and practically different system of religion from that upon which the church builds her hopes. It is not too much to say that the Trinity is the point in which all Christian ideas and interests unite, at once the beginning and the end of all insight into Christianity. End quote. We do not accept as Christians those who reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Rightly understood. That includes modalists. It includes polytheists. 
That includes subordinationists. You have to get this right. Friends, we can be wrong about a lot of things in Christianity and still be Christian. But this is not one of them. This you have to have right. You miss this by just a smidge and you are lost because you have the wrong God. We must embrace and worship and honor God as He has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. That is, the one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you say, do I have to know and understand and be able to articulate all of that perfectly in order to be saved? You're not going to be able to understand all of it. But you cannot reject it and be saved. You must embrace what Scripture says about the doctrine of the Trinity. You have to be willing to embrace that. And you may not understand how it all works. I don't. But you have to embrace it and trust it and believe it and affirm it in order to be saved. Otherwise, you have a different God. Now, like I said at the beginning, this is not, I know, not going to answer everybody's questions regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. So here's what we're doing. Next Sunday, for the worship service, we're going to dive into John chapter 5, verse 19. But for adult Sunday school class, we're going to have a, another session on the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to go a little bit deeper. There's some things that we did not cover today, like the doctrine of the, like what is the economic Trinity and what is the ontological Trinity. There are different sort of fine distinctions within that. So we're going to plow a little bit deeper next Sunday morning for adult Sunday school class. If you have questions about the Trinity, write those questions down today before you lose them. And then bring them to adult Sunday school class next Sunday, which starts at 9.30. And we will dive into the doctrine of the Trinity a little bit deeper. And then we will field some of the questions and kind of give answers about this very complex doctrine. Okay, we can all come back to the surface now. Life jacket's on. Take a deep breath. We all understand who the heretics are. We all understand who the Orthodox believers are. So we can leave here now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are bigger and greater than we could ever imagine. You have revealed Yourself as such. And even though we don't understand how all of these things work together or um, all of the intricacies of Your nature and Your being, we know that You are great. You are awesome. We affirm the full deity of the Spirit of God, who is God, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, and of You, our Father, who are God. And this God is eternal from all ages past. You never change. We thank You for that. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself, and we worship You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, in the name of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Please stand. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.